0: it's a great uh, pleasure and honor to have available to us uh one of the great authorities of our times on the perennial philosophy professor patrick lord yeah. P- professor lord is a, a highly respected professor of religious studies at the georgetown university the qatar uh, branch thereof and uh, he's he's one of my closest friends and i'm i'm very very grateful that he's accepted my invitation to share with us some of his insights his wisdom as regards the teachings of Friedrich Schuon who is the the great spokesperson of our times for the perennial philosophy which we may define later on but perhaps for the sake of people who don't know Anything about the perennial philosophy, we can just briefly summarize it in terms of, of Sophia Perennis. It, that, that evokes, I think, more effectively what we are about. Um, the Sophia Perennis is that wisdom, that um, heartfelt, sapiential knowledge, not theoretical only but rooted in the heart and then theoretically expressed in the perennial philosophy, the discursive aspect. But the essential element of the Sophia Perennis is actually it's experiential aspect that you, it's realizational, And that entails a great number of, of concomitant and demanding disciplines, both moral, intellectual, and spiritual. So with that very brief overview, I'm going to ask Patrick to lead us in a series of reflections. We hope it will last not more than 25 minutes um, uh, on a passage, which I will now ask Patrick to introduce for us and to read a few uh, sentences, perhaps from it. uh, Tell us where it is and why he's chosen to speak about this, apart from the fact that I asked him to. Over to you, Patrick.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much, Leza. um, I am honored by your invitation and it's a great pleasure to have this opportunity to discuss with you um, this very important uh, passage from this very important book with which uh, Fridge of is most often associated. You know, many people in academia have heard, I mean in religious studies at least, of course, have heard of Fridge of uh, few people have read him, very few people have read him carefully, <laughs> and um, among those who've heard of him at the very least, I think his name is most often associated with this, the title of this book, L'Unité the transcendante des Religions, Transcendent Unity of Religions. And in this book, which is one of his earliest works, uh, there is a chapter chapter 6, entitled The Ternary Aspect of Monotheism, which refers, of course, to the three Abrahamic uh, faiths, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And in this chapter, uh, Shion provides us with an enlightening view of the various relationships, uh, distinctions, relationships, complementarities, and providential uh, unfolding, so to speak, of these three uh, traditions, both in terms of what unites them and in terms of what uh, distinguishes them from each other. And in the final chapter, in the final section of the chapter, which is perhaps in some way the most interesting, at least for our current purpose and for our current circumstances, um, Fritjof Schion develops a a very suggestive, reflection or meditation on the relationship between these various religions or the various forms uh, through which these three religions are conveyed and are existential realities, and what he refers to as the essence, with a capital E. Uh, in, in the French, it's l'essence infinie, éternelle et informelle. L'essence infini, éternelle et informelle infinite, internal, and informal essence. And in doing so, Chiron implicitly uh, distinguishes and those who are familiar with his works will immediately recognize the implicit distinction between what he refers sometimes as beyond being of what René Guénon used to refer to as non-being or what the Sufi tradition or the Islamic tradition would refer, refer to as as that the that the uh, by contrast with the sifat, the, the qualities divine qualities or what the Advaitin uh, Advaita Vedanta would refer to as nirguna Brahman or the, the the non-qualified Brahman and so on and so forth. Anyway, this is the essence that is what could be what could be referred to as God as God or as the God in his own nature, in his own mystery, uh, independently from any uh, relationship with other than him, that is, independently from any creation and any relation with his creation, God as God. So this essence, of course, lies beyond all qualities, all determinations, and is therefore unknowable, unimaginable, and utterly transcendent, obviously, and therefore transcendent also vis-à-vis all the various sacred forms and religions that quote-unquote manifested. Right? So, in that respect, there is a gap, so to speak, between truth as such, with a capital T, the universal essential mystery, that is the core of all spiritual and religious traditions, and the traditions themselves, which from a certain point of view, and of course one, one may consider the, the question from different points of view, but from a certain point of view, these various traditions are what the Buddhists would call, and Sure liked very much to use this term, uh, which is intrinsic to his own vocabulary, uh, upaya. They are upaya in the sense of, in the Buddhist sense of skillful means. And in skillful means, there is the idea of means, therefore the idea of the implicit distinction between means and goal, uh, which implies that the religions are not themselves and in themselves the goal itself, Uh, but they are skillful, meaning that they are sacred sacred, uh, vehicles, uh, effective, um, God-given, Uh, Vehicles of uh, in order to reach the truth or to reach the goal. So you have these two aspects. Uh, The skillful means is that which conveys the truth, but it is not the truth at the same time. So one may insist on one aspect or the other, and and both are necessary. And in this particular passage, which I'm going to read now briefly, um, we see how these two aspects are, so to speak, uh, complementary, and also the ways in which in our particular time, uh, uh, the relationship between form and essence takes a particular, um, how should I say, um, uh, takes, I don't want to say flavor, but as a particular actuality that gives to it a very particular meaning and significance. Here is the, the passage. Um, I I read directly in the English translation. Every religion is necessarily an adaptation, and adaptation implies limitation. Adaptation because, and I stop here briefly, because adaptation because for sure, each and every religion responds to the need of a particular time and a particular people. So in that sense, it is an adaptation of what what himself and René and others have referred to as the primordial tradition. Which is what uh, Reza referred to earlier as uh, Sophia Perenis or Religio Perenis, if one wish, with a different yes, slightly different exception. So every religion is an adaptation, and adaptation implies limitation, obviously, because there is need to adapt to a particular set of circumstances and therefore limitations, all right? So that's the meaning of Upaya, in fact. Right? Hmm. And then I continued the text of Shu himself. If that is true of the purely metaphysical religions, It is still more true of the exoteric religions, which represent adaptations for the sake of more limited mentalities. Here, there's a distinction that is to be found in other places in Shion's works between what he calls sometimes metaphysical traditions. Here he calls them metaphysical religions. But later on, he would rather use the term metaphysical traditions. And by this term, he refers to the Asian metaphysical Traditions such as Advaita Vedanta, Taoism, Madhyamaka Buddhism, and so forth. That is, traditions that are primarily, if not exclusively, centered on what you would call beyond being. Uh, whether we refer to it as emptiness, uh, Shunya, or Mahayana, or the Tao, or um, Nirguna Brahman. So, these are the metaphysical religions or metaphysical traditions. And the second category of tradition are exoteric religions. And by this it means primarily, but not exclusively, the Abrahamic religions. And what distinguishes the so-called metaphysical traditions from the so-called exoteric religions here is that the latter, for him, and quite obviously, uh, addresses the entire mankind, whereas the first, the former, address only those who are qualified for them and seeking them, right, Uh, and actively seeking them and needing them, so to speak. So that explains why the latter are more uh, limited in scope. Even any form is limited by definition, but this particular set of forms is even more limited because it addresses the entirety of mankind. Shion said in one of his interviews that um, with uh, Plato, or with Shankara um, you cannot save mankind as a whole. So you need religions to save mankind as a whole. Um, So these limitations, I I start again the, the, the text itself, I read again the text itself, these limitations must needs be found in one manner or another in the origins of the religious forms and it is inevitable that they should be manifested. In the course of the development of these forms, becoming most marked at the end of the cycle to which they themselves necessarily contribute. And that sentence is extremely important because it tells us, it reminds us first that the religions are limited by definition because they address limited human beings and limited human collectivities. Uh, two, that these limitations are present already in the beginning. So, Yes, there is a perfection of each and every tradition from a certain point of view in the beginning, the apostolic age, because it's close to the the inspiration or to the the revelation. But still, even at the beginning, the limitations are present, and in fact, the limitations are nothing else in a sense than the self-limitation of the absolute uh, or the self-delimitation of the absolute in respect to a particular community, or a particular humanity, if you wish. So um, the limitations are present in the origin. That means that they are not the result, they are not only nor primarily the result of a historical decay. They are already there in the beginning. But of course, the limitative aspect, if I may put it that way, of these limitations increase or are more and more manifest as the tradition ages. Right. in the course of the development of these forms. And in the end, or toward the end, of course, these limitations become uh, in your face, so to speak, because they become more and more hardened. Mm. In the beginning the limitations were there, but they were, as it were, made unlimited by the spirit that blows where it least, We were close to the original spirit, so to speak, of the tradition. So the limitations were not a problem in a certain sense. They were just uh, the ransom of relativity yeah, right. human relativity. Uh, but as time goes, they become more and more problem, and especially of course in the end, because in the end the spirit has, to, to, to a large extent, not completely obviously, but to a large extent, these forms have been depleted, have become depleted from the spirit that animated them in the beginning. And that contributed to their flowering throughout his right. <clears throat> And then the last passage, uh, is um, most important. If these limitations are necessary for the vitality of a religion, because you need limitation in order to uh, energize, so to speak, the, the life of the tradition. Otherwise, the tradition would go in all directions. There's a need for a certain narrowness, so to speak, for the vitality of the tradition. There remain nonetheless limitations with the consequence that this implies. The heterodox doctrines themselves are indirect consequences of this need for curtailing the amplitude of the religious form and for limiting it in proportion with the advance of the Dark Age. It could not indeed be otherwise, even in the case of the sacred symbols, because only the infinite, eternal, and formless essence is absolutely pure and inviolable and because its transcendence must be made manifest by the dissolution of forms as well as by its radiation through them." So here, what, is, what I find very, very um, helpful in this passage is that it highlights that, the, that there are two different types of relationships, so to speak, between the essence and the sacred forms on the one hand, the essence radiates through the forms, and that's the aspect of revelation from wishes. That's the vitality of the tradition. And that's also, of course, the saving mercy of the tradition. Um, But the other dimension is the dimension of transcendence. And this dimension of transcendence is made evident or manifest paradoxically, by the dissolution of forms. The forms reveal most evidently their limitations. The forms reveal most evidently that they are not the essence. So, paradoxically, when forms start to decay, when forms start to ossify and dissolve, there's both an aspect of hardening and an aspect of dissolution in that process, then, it is as if the, 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 the sun of the essence, so to speak, were rising on the horizon. Um, there is a kind of um, a compensation. Mm. The vehicles of the truth sort of dissolve, but the truth rises on the horizon, so to speak, mm. at mm. least for those who, um, are, um, who have ears or other misguided eyes <laughs> to see. Um, of course, there would be a lot more to say, but I just wanted to introduce briefly this passage, which I find it very good, um, very important, and very significant in terms of understanding some of the key concepts of Shun's uh, Chiu, view of religion and hypnosis. Um, and
0: Wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, what we might do is carry on the discussion, to the next session next week, next Friday at this time, um, by which time I may have a few questions from uh, people who will watch this video and uh, maybe you could address those questions in the second session. Would that be all right for you? That would be wonderful, thank you. That's a very good idea. Very good. Um, well, there's no particular question. You've, you, you've given us a very clear exposition. In fact, both introductory and uh, quite advanced at the same time. It's both an introduction to the the basic concepts of the Sophia Perennis, at the same time as being very timely in relation to what's happening around us in what you have referred to in in one of your books as the unveiling that is proper to the word apocalypse. Um, And perhaps I could just ask you to say a few words about that etymologic, etymology of the the word uh, apocalypse and how it comes to mean unveiling as well as dis, dissolution.
1: Yes, and it's exactly related to the last sentence of this chapter in a sense. Right. Because when one, when one thinks of apocalypse or apocalyptic events in the in the modern world, one thinks, of course, of uh, disruption and chaos and destruction. Uh, but that's only the external aspect of the matter, because the, the Greek term apocalypto, the, the verb apocalypto means literally unveiling, unveiling that which is hidden. And that's, of course, a highly positive process. It's nothing else than the unveiling of the essence, to which Chillon uh, refers in the conclusion of this particular chapter. So, the real uh, secret, so to speak, of the Apocalypse, is the revelation of the hidden. And the revelation of the hidden, in this case, um, takes place uh, in the context of the destruction or the solution of the veils. And the veils, of course, uh, have, have two functions, they, they, they manifest or they transmit, uh, but they also obscure or hide, right? Um, and wow. in this case, it is the aspect of hiding, which is to be emphasized. Um,
0: Patrick, is there a, a, a legitimate, apocalyptic interpretation um that we might give or let me put it this way some people have suggested to me in the muslim world that uh the the way in which jesus's second coming the second coming of jesus which muslims of course anticipate as much as christians do we're all waiting for for jesus in the second coming um some of the hadiths of the holy prophet pertaining to this um this return of jesus seem to indicate uh well the person who gave me this interpretation said this that jesus is described by the prophet among other things he's uh, ruddy red cheeks and uh, as if he's just come from a from a bath a hammam or something he's ruddy-cheeked um And he, among other things, will kill the Antichrist, who will at that stage be confronting the Mahdi in the Islamic uh, eschatological narrative. Um, And he also will, will break the cross, the crucifix. He breaks the cross and he slaughters the swine so i wonder if in this prophetic description of particular qualities of the messiah the Kalki avatara whatever we want to call this person in all the different traditions chakravartin i think in buddhism they call him um, and the Jews, of course, are saying that this is the Messiah that we're waiting for, who's going to put everything right in the world, not just uh, get crucified, you know, and uh, claim to be risen from from the dead. Uh, so it's the Messiah of the Jews. It's Jesus returning for Christians and Muslims, and it's the Kalki Avatara for Hindus. It's I don't know what in the Native American tradition they probably have someone they identify with that function, and the and the uh, the Chakravartin for the Buddhists. So, uh, the person giving me this in- interpretation was suggesting that Jesus' description as breaking the cross and slaughtering the swine comes close to what Shuon is evoking in this idea of even the mm-hmm. fundamental symbols of mm-hmm. the tradition that hitherto had been salvific are now defunct. Right, right. What
1: yeah, do you- that's, a very, that's a very good point. I. I, I would agree with this, uh, this assessment, in a sense this is a, a symbolic expression of the breaking of forms and uh, in the name uh, of the essence, and that would correspond to this, to this unveiling, to this apocalyptic uh, final revelation of the, of the essence. Uh, of course, that is most likely understood in different terms, exoterically from an Islamic point of view, obviously. Theologically, with respect to the cross, for example, the negation of the cross. But if, if, the, if, the, if the lesson is to be universalized, as it were, then one could understand the cross as referring to, this, to the formal dimension of the religion, so to speak.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Well, Patrick, thank you so much. It's been a really interesting discussion and um, you've enlightened us on several key points of the Sophia Perennis. And I look forward to taking this discussion further next week, same place, Zoom, uh, same time and in our own homes. All right. Thank you very
1: much, Fraser.